There is an open country where I long to live, a place called prayer. It's lonely and often quiet there. Confusion and despair pass through from time to time but never stay long. The brightness of the sun always seems to be too much for them. In prayer, there are battles to be fought, tears to be cried, there is loss to be had, but in prayer, victory will always be attained. He too dwells in prayer. The wind of his presence blows softly over the land. He said, after all, my house shall be a house of prayer, and he really is the sweetest company. I long to live in prayer. I'll visit today and spend some time, unless, of course, I find myself too busy, too tired, or too lethargic to make the journey. Chapter 1. Apathy We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us on to the pursuit. A.W. Tozer I was born in Apathy, a small town on the coast of the grand nation of prayerless. Apathy was quaint, and that I had grown to have a deep appreciation for. Of course, I'd visited the big cities from time to time. Arrogance and lust were the nearest. They seemed thrilling, and I was quite enamored with their bright lights in my youth. But now I had settled like my forefathers before me in the real heartland of prayerless, apathy. In apathy, we despised and scoffed at the arrogant. They spent their whole lives climbing a ladder only to be kicked off by the next rising star, zealous for greater and higher glory. We certainly loved to gaze upon their accomplishments and were wonderfully entertained by their creativity expressed in songs and shows. But couldn't they see they were building castles of sands to be trampled on by the next man? They had invaded apathy a time or two. They'd kicked in our doors and demanded our possessions. They had an insatiable need to feel superior to the apathetic. Every home in apathy now boasted a great white flag of surrender, just in case they ever came around again. We cared not to fight. We knew too well that if we let them claim their victory, they would soon be dissatisfied with our land, and off they would go to prove their greatness to some other people. We'd gladly surrendered a thousand times over. And the land of lust seemed so promising once upon a time, but sooner or later you come to see that even pleasure well isn't that pleasurable. Living in lust is like purchasing your home on an interest rate too high ever actually pay down. You're always craving, always wanting, lifted by the anticipation of liberty, only to realize the hole you found yourself living in gets a little deeper with each passing day. It really is a miserable place to call home, and all those who lived there were miserable, whether they were willing to acknowledge that truth or not. We could see right through the idols of arrogance and lust and apathy, and so we chose comfort to be our king. We work to live, but live to rest. I, like all those who dwell in apathy, love nothing more than stillness and quiet, not the kind of quiet that bears down upon you and actually forces you to think about the magnitude of life or the maker, but the kind of quiet where no one else seems to exist. Live and let live, that was my motto. You could have your cake and eat it too as far as I was concerned, as long as you leave me out of it. Every man is his own keeper in apathy. What's brotherhood to the apathetic after all? Like my father before me and his father before him, I was a rather dignified clergyman. My old man, Lucas Sr., was heavy-set, unkempt, and dogged in his routines and ritual. He lived his life surrounded by books and cigars and was largely uninterested in all that went on outside of his study. Most, like me, stayed out of his way. Luke, he would call. Ask your mother to brew me another cup of coffee. Delighted that he called on me, I would scurry in with a hot cup of joe and he would smile as he turned back to his reading. That was the kind of father he was, busy, distant, but pleasant enough. He only spoke in public to address his congregation, and never more than once a week, always Sunday and always at 10 a.m. I do not remember much of what he said behind his pulpit, but I do remember the way his words made me feel, proud, righteous, and warm. The first church of apathy that he led, I now was proud to pastor. We had a long-standing tradition of stoic and dignified religion, not like these new and eccentric churches that were popping up in arrogance or the power-hungry congregations striving in the city of lust. 
They clamor and fracture as they jockey for position. Never in apathy, God forbid, we stayed the course. Change was a tool only to be wielded against our tradition, and I sought to never allow her that opportunity. We were fixed in our ways down to the very schedule of service and aesthetic of the building. Every few years, some young, zealous man or woman would suggest something absurd, like changing the color of the carpet or painting the walls. That disgusted me more than anyone ever came to truly realize. I would cut such a zealous individual off at the knees and drive them from our harmonious and consistent sanctuary. Our message was rather plain. God is kind, humanity is good, and empathy is king. We saw no need in preaching that riled up the affections and startled men from their state of ease. I made up my mind to carry on the legacy of my father and sought to hone his skills of leaving a congregation feeling warm and satisfied, as if they just had a home-cooked meal and ready to kick up their feet and dream of sweeter days. My parishioners lovingly began to refer to my preaching as lukewarm. Another lukewarm Sunday, they would say, Lucas Sr. would be so proud. On those sentiments, I hung my ever-loving hat. Though my hat was soon to be knocked from its ancient hook and my life was to be startled like never before. How I came to this sudden awaken, I'm sorry to say I'm unsure. As if the maker and his sovereignty shook me out of my slumber. Why bother me of all people? Grace is strange this way. You will know, of course, that all those who exist in the vast land of prayerless, whether in apathy and arrogance or in lust, believe that prayerless is the only place that one could ever exist. The maker seemed to open my eyes to see that my eyes were not open to the truth at all. It happened that one evening in my boredom, or was it leisure, what's the difference after all, as I walked along a well-worn and familiar path neatly tucked away beyond my family home that my thoughts began to slide away from me. There I experienced a flash of loneliness or chilling despair. All those in apathy are prone to seasons of sorrow like this. It's certainly not uncommon. We discuss our mental health frequently and have learned to thoroughly suppress these kinds of events primarily by never letting our minds dive too deep or to think too long on any one significant subject. Oh, you could think of your favorite novel for a while. Just don't let your mind consider things like death or judgment and, for heaven's sake, never eternity. This particular hour, I lacked the mental discipline to maintain the positive and shallow perspective to keep mental stability and apathy. And in a moment of weakness, I whispered through my pain toward the maker with a single phrase, You can heal me if you are willing. What a foolish thing to do, I thought, as I shook off my state of sorrow. I'm an educated and moral man. I spurred myself on. Hold it together. Don't lose your sanity now. I whispered off into the dark. Chapter 2. I Am Why grow weary when asked to watch with our Lord? Up, sluggish heart, Jesus calls thee. Rise and go forth to meet the heavenly friend in the place where he manifests himself. Ian Bounds Opening the back door to my countryside home, I had a passing and strange thought. What if there is somewhere beyond prayerless? Of course, there were legends and fables of men who not only knew about the Maker, but really knew the Maker himself. Enoch walked with God, and he was no more. The 120 prayed until tongues of fire fell from heaven and rested upon them. We had long ago left an actual conviction that these things actually took place. The wisdom of the scholarly elite had taught us otherwise. But even the first church of apathy was riddled with this peculiar tradition. There was a man who passed through apathy for a season and frequented my father's services for a time. He was elderly, his coat always seemed to stink of smoke, and his eyes were darker than a living man's ever should be. He shared with my father and me one afternoon as we were attempting to leave the sanctuary and make it home for dinner that the first church of apathy was actually built on a great mountain, not in the land of Perlis, but in another country, one called Prayer. The story goes, he uttered our way, that these men built the church on rigid doctrinal statements and clung to uneducated ideas like the inerrancy and inspiration of the Maker's great book. 
As the years passed, the church slid down that mountain, they say, slowly and methodically until it finally rested where it sits to this day. Rubbish, my father mumbled. And with that, we were off to lunch. I drifted off to sleep after a hot meal and a warm bath, only to be started in the early hours of the morning by an eerie dream again. I sat erect. I knew without a doubt that there was no hope of slipping back into sleep, but held on to a distant hope that maybe I would grow drowsy yet again. Then he nudged me. The maker, I'm sure of it, nudged me to rise. It wasn't an audible voice that had spoken or a physical thrust, just a nudge somewhere within my inner man. Of course, we didn't believe in the inner man. We were far too intellectual for such old-fashioned and plain thinking, but this event took place nonetheless. It was as if the maker was not confined by my anti-supernatural thought life. Who would have thought? So I rose, put on my coat, and began to walk back down the familiar path many hours before the sun was to rise. When I reached the end of the road, rather than turning home, I felt compelled to keep walking. I know not where I thought I was headed or how I would know when I had arrived, just placed one foot in front of the other, hoping to appease this foreign hunch I now carried somewhere within my bones. I walked towards the coast for hours, feeling mad all the while, voices steadily ringing between my ears mocking me for such insanity and pure juvenile thinking, yet my feet marched on. The sun began to cut the horizon as I approached the coastline. I made for a cleft, out of courtesy for the view, thinking she deserved a chance to move me. Emotion began to well up. Was this exhaustion or adrenaline? I had avoided both for decades now, and so was unable to discern my current state. I wept, feeling desperate and slightly humiliated, and uttered those alien words again. If you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. Prayer fumbled off of these profane lips. I am willing. Suddenly from the horizon, what seemed to be a rising wave stood tall in the distance. With rhythm and determination, it stormed in my direction. Like a child learning to navigate the ocean, I felt the urge to dive beneath the raging tide or somehow leap over it. I just needed to escape the inevitable collision now marching my way. As I turned in fear, I saw that this wave was no wave formed of the ocean deep, but a wave formed of soil, clay, land. Some deep place called out to some deep place within me. I froze and closed my eyes tightly as the coast of Prairless glided with another land, fracturing the edge of both territories, two plates grinding together as if in an awful earthquake. This new land, the land unknown, tumbled to a resting place and all at once opened up to me, near enough that I could, with a few steps, stand on its soil. I could see men slightly in the distance, like trees walking about. Some even began to look vaguely familiar, as if I'd beheld their likeness before. This mystical territory was marked with a rather unimpressive sign declaring its boundary lines. Handwritten in red on a single stake read these words, Lazarus, come out. Chapter 3. Offense and Conviction A sermon often does a man most good when it makes him most angry. Those people who walk down the aisle and say, I'll never hear that man again, very often have an arrow rankling in their breast. Charles Spurgeon Lazarus, I chuckled. Was I a dead man wrapped in cloth, linen, lying behind stone? Furthermore, did this sign intend to communicate that all those in the land of prayerless lay as lifeless corpses, bleak and cold? What audacity these people had to condemn an entire region whom they knew nothing of. I knew the text reference here and was deeply offended that it would be used against us in such a disgraceful manner. I taught my parishioners like the sober and faithful men before me to remain sober and faithful. These strangers had mistaken our sobriety for death. Do we stink to them as men who have laid decaying in the grave for a number of days? The blood rushed to my face. I was intrigued and unsure of the strange land. That was true enough. But I now concluded that this must somehow be an extension of the arrogant, with their latest technological advancements. They surely conjured up some emotional and climatic event to draw me to this place of decision, only to condemn the spirituality of a wonderfully dignified clergyman. 
What a sham. What a complete waste of my time and energy. I should have slept in. I should have enjoyed my quiet time and made my way to the library with a great literary classic waiting to bury me behind her pages, I thought to myself. I shouted to an elderly woman passing in the distance. You, yes, you, come, I have an inquiry. Had I been in my right mind, I surely would have noticed that this woman was dressed modestly, not like the citizens of the city arrogant, and she carried herself with a simple humility and grace. I tucked my shirt tail in, straightened my tie, quickly threw on the posture of a professional preacher. With authority in my tone, I asked her, what land is this? What people are you? Before she had an opportunity to answer, I launched into a lecture concerning my moral uprightness, strength of character, and years of servitude to the maker. You arrogant people have the mind to condemn us who dwell in apathy, I railed. You know nothing of peace, nothing of longevity and tradition, nothing of high liturgy. I scolded the woman with all the passion an apathetic man can muster up. She smiled softly and said, You stand before a timeless fork in the road. Offense or conviction, where will you make your bed? She went on as if laying a riddle before me. Tread lightly, choose wisely. These two paths will lead you to two different lands entirely. Make your case plain, I demanded, as if we were now engaged in public formal debate. She chuckled. You have not come to the land of arrogant, as you suppose. You stand at the edge of the land of prayer. If you'd like, I'll show you the way, but you'll have to come off your high horse, O Saul of Tarsus. A woman will show me the way, I mumbled beneath my coffee-stained breath. As she sat through a day of higher education, who is she to show me anything? Noticing my hesitancy, she beckoned me still with sincerity. I do not know much, young man, but I promise you I know prayer. Prayer, I thought. Ah, I'm speaking to a woman who has long ago lost her senses. I allowed her to continue her thoughts and smiled and nodding, thinking to exchange some pleasantries and then politely escape this encounter without unsettling this rather deranged aging woman. Yes, let us show you the way, she said, as she turned her gaze towards the heavens. Oh, God, she cried. Teach us your children to seek your face above all else. She spoke with heart and with passion. You are the bread of life. You are the satisfaction of our deepest longings. She now seemed to be lost in her decrees. Now I was growing embarrassed. What if someone sees me here engaging in this insane woman's wild fantasy? What did she think she was doing? And who was it she supposed was listening? The maker surely doesn't hear petty, common, uneducated women like this, I thought. Her words grew louder, and I began to grow in agitation. My brain pulsed with frustration. She was now interrupting my serenity, my peace, my all-sacred silence. Silence, I cried. Stop your praying now, please. I do not know you, nor your land, nor your agenda. I have not agreed to participate in this kind of thing. I have a heritage, a long-standing tradition of respectable spirituality to maintain. Please go on about your way. You are dismissed now, I said as if I carried some unspoken weight of authority. You do have a heritage and a rich tradition. It's a shame you know nothing of it, she lamented. I began to walk slowly, methodically, and quietly. As I walked, I allowed my mind to ponder this woman's proposition. Offense or conviction, two paths to two lands. One foot in front of the other, I stroked the path as I defended my life. I spent a great measure of my time affirming my own spirituality, reciting my creeds, and firming up my commitment to the values all those in apathy held. She's wrong. They're wrong, I muttered. Lazarus, come out, I repeated to myself. The words awaiting me as I stood there on the shore. Me, a dead man. I was loved, respected, cherished even. Was my entire existence and prayerless, lifeless? Did my ministry and apathy resemble a tomb? If so, it had been a pure one, a spotless one, whitewashed even. Dead, they say. Did we not have hearts beating within our rib cages as they? I grumbled and fussed as I allowed the path of offense to lead me back to apathy. Two paths, two lands. The well-worn path of offense carried me sweetly to my countryside home in apathy. Breathe, I thought. Settle your heart and rest again. I pulled back the sheets and settled in my sanctuary. 
preparing my mind for tranquility. If paths I must choose, offense it shall be, and in apathy I shall continue to live. I whispered to no one. Chapter 4, Peace and No Peace. I am not a Bible-believing Christian in the fullest sense simply by believing the right doctrines, but as I live and practice in the supernatural world. Francis Schaeffer. Coffee, coffee, cake and coffee, I chanted as I rolled out of bed. Another sunny Sunday with another agreeable sermon to share. Suppressing the terrors of the previous day, I dressed for work calmly and collectively. Forgetting what lies behind, I must press on towards the goal, I quoted to myself from some epistle written by some apostle, forgetting altogether what the upward goal was that this forgotten apostle was pursuing after all. Peace, probably peace, I suggested to myself. I strolled through the front doors of the first church of apathy, just as I'd always done, as I'd seen my father always do. I led the congregation with two brief songs of half-hearted praise we had sung a hundred times before, although no one had any interest in the old decrees our voices now rigidly projected. I made a few announcements. So-and-so has passed on to a better place, and we will take an offering for an organization who serves the poor, warm meals on holidays. Don't worry, you're not required to show up nor clean up. Just give to the cause, and we shall all move on with our holiday celebrations. Opening the old book on the old desk, I prepared to share my heartwarming homily for the week. Mark 4.39, I announced. He arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. What is the will of God for you? I asked rhetorically. Great calm. I had become a master at sharing, essentially, the same principle with virtually these same people now for decades. The maker is a God of order, and it's order he desires, I would say. But this particular day, as I shared, my mind began to skip in the opposite direction. As I declared one thing from my mouth, my thoughts seemed to thunder the antithesis of my life's message. I felt trapped. My lips continued to move, but my heart was not warmed at all. No, it was not warm, but cold, lifeless even. Am I spiritually awake at all, I wondered. Offense, I chose offense, yet conviction seemed to now be having her way with me. Lazarus, come out. This was an accusation of my own spiritual death, no doubt about that. But could this also have been an invitation? The elderly woman seemed to think so. The Messiah loved that man. He stood and wept at his tomb. He called him a beloved friend. Could the Messiah be inviting me into communion with himself? No, no, not an invitation, but a command, the voice of conviction rebutted. If the Maker nudged me and the Maker whispered, it could be that coming out of prayerless and into prayer is the Maker's command for my life, I thought. Oda learned of this mystical country to know him in the land of prayer. Externally, I continued with my soothing words as internally this dialogue continued. Finally, I decided that I had had enough. For the first time in my career as a minister, I paused for a moment and closely examined my listeners. Were they listeners at all? I came to a life-shattering conclusion. These folks were utterly glazed over, perfectly indifferent concerning all that I had to say. With that, I concluded abruptly. No one would notice anyhow. What does God desire for you? Peace. I closed the old book and said out loud, unless of course he doesn't. I climbed down from the pulpit and headed towards the back, eager to be on with it all. I neglected my handshaking responsibility and began down a winding trail with no destination in mind, just pesky questions to ponder. The longer I walked and the further I thought, the more constricted I felt. I imagined myself as that ancient prophet running from God now confined to the ribs of an ancient fish. I simply could not unsee what I had seen. Jonah, oh Jonah, how do I escape this prison of mine, I wondered, and recalled Jonah to one. 
From the inside, the fish Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Pray, pray I must. In sincerity, I tell you, I had no need of prayer previously. With no need of prayer, I had no idea of how to actually do so. Teach me to pray, I cried with thick, heavy sobs. It was then I recalled the disciples of the Messiah's request. Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. What did he say to those young men? I racked my brain. Then to my memory, I recalled my aged father reciting the Lord's Prayer with a great nobleness about him. Our father, he would say, who art in heaven. Ashamedly, I mimicked all that I could remember, raised my voice and rehearsed that prayer. But nothing took place. I expected the great rushing wave of soil to pound the land of prayerless, but I was left wanting. I wept with even deeper tears. Exasperated, I called Father. We never referred to the Maker as Father. It was too intimate of a title. But now I needed a Father, not a distant deity uninterested in my life's affairs. I spoke no other words, just fumed with desperation and let an occasional sigh out. I lay in the puddle of defeat for some time and only rose when I heard the voice of a man thundering nearby. He chose his text. Jeremiah 6.14 They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. He prevailed over me, his logic crushing, his words demanding my full attention. I wondered for a brief moment how his parishioners were not wailing out in agony, only to discover that this man had no parishioners. I alone was his congregation. Standing there in the land of prayerless, I watched this thin yet towering man preach from somewhere deep down inside his gut as he stood there firmly in the land of prayer. Judgment is nigh, he howled. Save yourself from the wicked generation and wonder and rebellion no more, he continued. He offered me no neat poetic rapping on his conclusion and left me with nearly no practical principles to try out on my life throughout the coming week. I just dangled there, fully aware that I had built a life that worshipped external comfort, while internally I had no peace with the Maker. I had been nothing more than a shepherd feeding himself, and I was fat for the day of slaughter. You preach to me, I said as he turned to walk deeper into the land of prayer. I have no peace and know nothing of what it means to commune with the Maker. Help me, please. Teach me to walk with you in the land of prayer. He smiled gently and left me with prose. Lest you learn to love and clothe yourself inside the slain lamb's robe, you may never come boldly before the throne. Oh yes, I replied, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I do know something of this which you speak. I'm desperate. Sir, lead me to drink from the well of life you have found. He urged me sternly. You must gather all your life's earnings and sell all your achievements and your dreams in order to purchase this field that carries great treasure. Leave behind all that you knew and trust fully in all that he is. Be washed from your iniquities and receive grace upon grace. I listened as if my life depended on what he had to say, and of course it did. The heartbeat of prayer is communion with the ancient of days. No man comes to communion with the Father lest he comes through the Son. Therefore no man learns to tread on the sacred ground of prayer lest he first forsakes his own efforts to appear clean and in humble desperation clothes himself in the righteous robe of Messiah. Then and only then can you stand in the sacred place. As I listened, my heart leapt from its sorrow into a spring of pure joy. There was a sweet flame kindled within my soul. It was this hour that I both died and was born. I walked with this preacher and talked with him. I laughed as I had never laughed at all before. Unknowingly, I had then for the very first time crossed over into the land of prayer. When I came to this reality, I gasped. I am unworthy to dwell in this place. It's far too holy for a man like me. The blood of the lamb is our only hope, isn't it? The preacher asked as he wrapped his long, thin arm around my shoulders. Strangely enough, it was here that I first learned of peace. I had preached on calm, proclaimed ease, sought comfort, but peace is something different entirely, something much grander than anything I'd before tasted. Chapter 5. The House of Prayer The Spirit is both a builder and a dweller. 
He cannot dwell where he has not built, and he builds to dwell and dwells in only what he has built. Watchman Nee. The preacher invited me to visit with him further in a house he had built in the land of prayer. I received the invitation gladly. In truth, I would have gone anywhere with this man and still would to this day. It's just a short distance from here, an hour walk or so, he said as he pointed vaguely in the direction we were to journey. Yes, I'd love to see more of this land and talk with you a while longer, I replied. As we walked, he told me of his life before the lamb and his life after. Both produced scars, although one brought forth fruit that would stand for eternity. It was in the middle of a lengthy narrative, belaboring a point that I could not seem to grasp, when I noticed that my feet began to feel heavy like lead. He marched on swiftly, as if there was no care in the world. I dragged one foot in front of the other as my shoes began to sink in the ground beneath me. Like the tide had turned and the mud had come out to play, I slipped and sank and sank and slipped, trying all the while to follow along with the story he was so intent to share with me. I cannot keep up, I finally blurted out. I'm afraid I'm out of breath and sinking, and my legs feel weighty and my feet worn. How is it that you glide on while I'm drowned in the clay beneath me, I asked. At this point, I was knee-deep in the muck. Sludge, rocks, blood, and sweat filled my shoes as it climbed towards my thighs. I was rather embarrassed by my predicament. I certainly could not enter this righteous man's house covered in this mire, and why on earth would I not walk as he? Oh, forgive me for not noticing sooner, Luke, he sighed. In prayer, you must walk in the spirit and never in the flesh. Clothe yourself with humility and set your heart to adore him all the journey long. Every step must be made with gratitude, and every breath must be absorbed with praise. If you lean here on the strength of the flesh, you will surely sink through the very land itself. She will vomit you out again into the land of prayerless. I have seen many raise their heads in pride as they've walked about swiftly and drown in the soil beneath their feet. You must learn to commune with him all the day long, and then you shall soar on eagles' wings. For now, try setting your mind on his great love and worshiping him aloud with every stride. As you grow strong in the spirit, your heart will learn to rest in sweet fellowship with him as your hands stay busy with other things. I thought again of the Lamb's blood and his great mercy. Thank you, I whispered. I really love you, I declared. With every phrase of affection I poured on his feet, my own feet began to rise. As I cherished him with all of my heart, it was as if my shoes found their footing on a firm stone staircase, carrying me back to solid ground. Before I knew it, I was able to keep pace with the preacher again, and every stride led me deeper into the sacred new world. We're getting closer, the preacher announced, as we rounded a bend beyond a stream that certainly flowed with pure joy. Set on a round hill, a small cabin awaited us, overlooking a field of yellow that must cause the brightest sun to blush. Come in and please make yourself at home, Luke, said the preacher. He poured us a cup of coffee. Nothing particularly exotic, just the kind of cup that tastes like home. We talked deep into the evening. There's a kind of friendship that exists in prayer, koinonia it's sometimes called, that dwells much deeper within the soul than anything that exists in prayerless. The preacher told me of his fears, his failures, and his dreams, and in long moments of silence he would utter a thank you, King Jesus, and I a holy, holy, holy. After some time, and as we grew drowsy, we rose and made our way into the cabin. It's getting late, Luke. You're welcome to bunker down here for the night, the preacher graciously offered. I was tired. Not the kind of exhaustion that I had learned to avoid at all costs, but the kind of tired that only comes after a day of long-awaited fulfillment. I will stay if it doesn't put you out, I replied. The preacher walked me into the warm cabin just as the sun decided to set. There were two rooms, a single bath, and a small kitchen. There's always just enough space in prayer, he chuckled. As he led me down the hall, there were individual portraits that lined the walls. This is praying Hyde. He prayed until his heart broke from travail, he said. Here, this is Brainerd. He died young but lived a rich life of prayer. I found that keeping great men of prayer before your eyes helps to keep the embers of your soul stirred, he concluded. I'll keep that in mind, I said. 
As we came to my room, I noticed a man that looked strangely familiar hanging there on the preacher's wall. I had seen this face, where I didn't know, and for some reason, I didn't ask. I thought this was a man I must have learned of in my seminary years, and I was too proud to show my ignorance of history here. So I walked on and settled into a twin-sized bed, tucked away in the preacher's guest room. And there I wept the sweetest tears. I had come to know the Lamb and His Father. Although my eyes never gazed upon the Maker, I had sensed the Spirit draw near to me with a nearness I never thought possible. I remembered the deep longing I once had for life, real life, the longing that led me to pride and eventually to lust, only to leave me wanting still. This was the same longing that I learned to suppress in apathy and to avoid thoroughly with shallow thinking and the pursuit of comfortable living. Here, in Christ, as I lay my head in prayer, the longing finally beheld its desire. I slipped off into sleep as I said to myself, I will live here forever and never again shall I dwell in the land of prayerless. Chapter 6. Awake and Prayerless. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. John Owen. I dozed off to sleep in a twin-sized bed tucked away in the preacher's cabin, but I woke again in the plush king I'd loved for many nights before. I popped out of bed and began my morning routine strolling down the hall to start the shower when I finally came to realize what had taken place. How is it that I fell asleep in prayer but awoke again in prayerless, I wondered. And I felt as if I were filled with all of heaven just some eight or nine hours ago, but now like dry dust again. My stomach turned. Had I eaten at all the day before? I smiled as I thought of the coffee I had shared with the preacher, but I had not eaten. I scrambled to put some food in my stomach, remembering that I had an early meeting to discuss our buildings and grounds at the first church, and whether or not we could afford to repair the roof that had been leaking now for decades, it seemed. I was consumed with a sense of responsibility. Or was I a people pleaser? Either way, I could not stand to be late for this meeting. I walked briskly toward the office and thought of the night prior's joy. I shall live forever in prayer, I had sworn. How passion can be so fickle. Now I was absorbed in my day's work and thought if I could finish promptly, I would hope to make my way to prayer and maybe pray with a preacher. Another Monday crawled by slowly. I really had duties to attend to, but rather pondered the words of that elderly woman I had met the first time the land of prayer came crashing down upon me. You do have a heritage and a tradition, she said, and it's a shame you know nothing of it. I replayed her words for some time, the words of a woman of prayer much heavier than those of the prayerless. Legacy, legacy, what kind of legacy, I wondered aloud. I pondered again the story the smoke-smelling man had told my father, that our church was founded on an old mountain in the land of prayer. Obviously, it seemed like nonsense when nonsense was all that we had ever known. Now I had seen prayer and walked upon her soil, unsuccessfully for a time, but I did get a hang of it after the preacher's advice. Could this man have known more of our heritage than we first thought? Tradition, what is our tradition, I asked myself. Suddenly my mind swam away from me and led me down the preacher's hall. I stared at the man's picture there in the praying hall of fame, the man I knew that I should know but didn't know, the man I was too proud to ask about. I snapped out of this startling vision, hopped to my feet, and fumbled down the first church mildewed hall. Into the library I stormed, slamming the door behind me as if it deserved a good beating. I scurried through a long shelf of dusty books that no one cared to read. In honesty, I kept them there to maintain some image, as a scholarly type and an educated man. Aha, I shouted. I opened a book entitled Our Story, a short and nice collection of pictures of the First Church's members and their families. I had no idea why anyone had taken the time to put that together, as if we actually cared about one another in a meaningful or intimate way. I flicked through the pages. As a young boy waiting on my father to conclude a counseling session, I had once flipped through them before, laughing at the ridiculous dress of these early years. 
My breath was ripped from my chest as I saw his face. The man from the Preacher's Praying Hall of Fame stood there among other men with a single line written under the faded photograph. Our founders, it read. I gasped. How is it that a great man of prayer had participated in the founding of this church that not only rested in the land of prayerless, but did not even believe in prayer at all, I thought. Then my face ran flush. How is it that I pastor this church that this man of prayer founded, and I know nothing of him or the lamb whom he served? I have built lousily on another man's foundation. What a shame. What a shame, I lamented. Chapter 7. A Bruised Reed it is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to. C.S. Lewis In my agony and pure despair, I hustled toward the coast again, weeping as I went out. I arrived much quicker than the days before. I thought maybe the frequent journey had whipped me in shape. I could afford to lose a pound or twenty, after all. On the cliff where I now came to pray, I cried, Father, forgive me my trespasses. As the land of prayer opened up to me again, always thoroughly cinematic in its presentation. Determined to see my now dear friend, the preacher, I wiped frustration from my cheeks all the way back to his cabin. I knocked on the door, but had no luck. I sat down on his front steps and hung my head. From within the house, I heard him shout, Never stop knocking. Surely you'd earned this by now. I laughed from deep within. He saw my tears and began to pray. Thank you for your kindness, God, that leads us to repentance, he sighed. I hadn't told him a thing of my journey, but he seemed to always pray first. Determined, I took note and thought my counseling may have been more successful for all these years had I believed in prayer. After our amens, we sat again and rocked as friends do for quite some time. I fell asleep in prayer and awoke in prayerless. What a letdown, I moaned. Oh yes, staying in prayer is a discipline only a few learn. I too still wake up in prayerless from time to time. Our hearts are deceptive and our flesh always comes back for more, he replied. Keep it prayer and you learn to put off the ragged old man and to wear the new. Walking down the hall last night, when you showed me Hyde and Brainerd, there was another man whose picture I had seen before, but I was too ashamed to admit that I didn't know who he was. I didn't want you to think less of me for my ignorance, I admitted. Nonsense, the preacher declared. No one could dwell long in prayer if we carried that kind of hardness of heart. His name was Evan, and he was a man who groaned in prayer many nights through. I saw his picture listed as a founder of the First Church of Apathy, which I now pastor, I confessed. The first church of apathy was once the first church of fiery affection, he chuckled. Evan and his companions would roll in their graves if they were to see that building resting in prayerless. Tell me about this man and his companions, if you would be so kind, I asked. Picked from his family tree, with no rhyme or reason that we could see, once he rested in the Savior's plan, no one could pluck him from his hand. His father was an angry man, gripped by drink, as was his father before him. He came to Messiah flipping through an old hymnal left in the attic of his home by the previous owners. What happened from there became a glorious history. His family would mock him and his peers jeer, but Evan would preach through with heavy and hot tears. Most despised him, but some were one to the kingdom. It was they who began to gather, pray, and worship the Lamb. Evan had no large following, he continued, or great influence, but those who knew him loved him with a great love. He made his home in prayer, he and his band of brothers. They built that church brick by brick, embracing their position as misunderstood outcasts, too alive with faith to ever carry on with the dead. They really were a fiery people, and so their name was fitting enough. He walked with me to an old oak shelf stuffed with books that had been thoroughly read. Not the kind of nice and firm books kept in pristine condition, but the kind bent and stained with deep brown pages. He pulled a thin paperback down from the line and placed it in my hand with a smile. His biography, he said. He beckoned me to take it and be about my way. 
I hadn't seen much of the land of prayer at this point. I had spent the majority of my time with the preacher and was rather content to stay with him, but I took the book and headed out the door, singing to the Lamb boldly so that my feet would not sink. Even those who know nothing of praying men and women before them often learn that some distant saint had been wrestling through many nights on behalf of their own souls and find some legacy that they are now burdened to carry forward. I learned of Evan's trials, his perseverance through hellish persecutions, and his life's work of planting a church high on a sacred mountain in prayer. But as Evan aged and he passed the baton, each generation after grew milder in their temperament and less fiery in their affections. Slowly, year by year, the church backslid so slowly that no one noticed the change at all until she finally rested in apathy, and now with me at the helm. The pulpit I now stood behind, he carved with passionate exposition of the Maker's holy word that I had not taken seriously at all. What has become of my life, I thought, as I finished this biography late Friday evening. The Lamb had awakened me, and I had walked in prayer now for days. Everything I thought I knew and thought I was now crumbled beneath my feet like worn ash. I felt courage flood my veins as I determined that I would return to this holy heritage and I would declare all that I had come to know in this man's honor. Chapter 8. The Hunted Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8.33 Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. I demanded as my fist shook the pulpit. There is one word you are never to use in apathy, the R word. The women would whisper, and I had determined to swing it about as a sharp blade, hoping to awaken some sort of emotion from the forever sleeping. Repent, I demanded again. Silence swept over the congregation. One woman from whom I had hardly heard a syllable for months gasped in horror. You foul-mouthed vermin, she declared as she waddled towards the door. I refused to slow. Do you know the lamb? Have you been washed in his precious blood? Have you met with him in prayer? I inquired. In prayer. Tom Sanders, a firm acquaintance, questioned me. Prayer is a myth, and the Lamb asks nothing of us but to live nice lives in his honor, he shouted. Nice, yes, nice, the congregation showed their support for drowsy Tom. Repent or you shall perish, I shouted. Now this was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. Tom fumed. The whole room erupted. In honesty, it felt good to see some kind of movement in the church. They shuffled and bickered as the room quickly emptied. There were, of course, a handful who stayed behind to have a few cordial words. You fraud, one snarked. You go home and settle and come back with a level head or you're fired, his partner proclaimed. The shepherd is dismissed by his flock, I replied with a chuckle as my face ran red with embarrassment. Breathe, I told myself. Don't dishonor him now. I have come to believe the Maker's book, to be cleansed by his blood, and to know him in the land of prayer. I continued speaking as softly as any angry man could. This church has a legacy of prayer, and men of prayer labored to establish it. We must return, I concluded. Spit struck my cheekbone as the door was slammed and the cordial few dismissed themselves. I was humiliated. I gathered all the strength that I could and determined to prayer I would go and in prayer I would hide. I set my mind to find a quiet place near the preacher's cabin where the spirit could tend to my mortal wounds. As I crossed over the border of prayerless and into prayer, I noticed that I was in fact bleeding. I had nicked myself as I kicked the front door of the sanctuary open and a red stream flowed down my leg and puddled in my shoes. I prayed aloud. Father, teach me to forgive those who trespass against me. Prayer seemed hard now. I couldn't hear my thoughts through all of the noise. I had never known noise in prayer, but now there was certainly a great clamoring, yes, noise. What was it? Oh, dogs, I thought. They were barking and howling as if they were on the tracks of a beast to be had. I saw a great, thin, angry hound with a single bell hanging from his collar. He sprinted my way as the bell chimed angrily. I have always been a heavy man and have never been particularly intimidated by dogs and felt no particular fear here in this predicament. 
though I now saw several others like him bolt from the tree line with a single bell, each adding a degree of nuisance. What are they hunting, I wondered. I watched them storm over the hills with their nose deep in the soil, fussing and shouting all the while. Alas, I saw the hunter step from the tree line. He was tall and slender, dressed in camouflage with deep green paint smeared around his high-set cheekbones. His eyes cold like steel and his voice was rough as he pointed directly at me and shouted, Get the fraud! The hounds now lifted their heads and barreled full steam my way. In complete horror, I panicked. Fear settled over me as I began to run. I quickly realized that I was not running quickly enough, for my feet were sliding downward in the mud. Walk in the spirit, I said aloud, echoing the preacher's words. Holy, 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 I shouted with each stride, and with that my feet began to rise and carry me again. I came to see that there was no hope in escaping. The first hound to meet me tore through my flesh as he shook my left thigh. I grabbed his snout and pulled back his lips, only to discover that his canines were not canines at all, but were finely sharpened blades where his teeth should be. These were clearly designed by the hunter to slice any prey. I moaned and cried like a grown man never should. The next dog knocked me from my feet, and the pack continued to cut my tired skin as a hunter paced systematically in my direction to claim his prize. He paused a hundred strides or so short of me, pulled back his bow, and locked me in his sights. "'Trust the lamb,' a young man yelled from over the hill. "'Yes, I trust you,' I whispered to the spirit." As I rolled in agony through the mud, I rolled upon a great shield of faith. I raised it and shouted, I trust him. As the hunter's arrow struck its bronze face, the young man ran down to my rescue and drew a mighty sword, far too large for his stature, though he swung it with eloquence. He cried, those whom he predestined, he also called and branded his great blade, leaving the first dog bleeding out in the soil. And those whom he called, he also justified, he howled, striking two hounds in one swing. And those whom he justified, he glorified, he concluded, knocking down the final beast, now angrily gnawing at my shoulder. You hypocrite and utter fake, the hunter scolded me as another arrow left his bow and stung my shield. The dogs now scurried, and the hunter smoothly slipped back behind the tree line. The smell of blood turned my stomach. I was unsure I would recover. Thank you, young man, I whispered through my affliction. He nodded and stretched out his hand to lift me to my feet. Was that your first time, he inquired. First time being hunted, I asked. All those in prayer are stalked by the hunter. To dwell here for any length of time, you have to learn to endure being hunted. Resist him and he will always flee. The young man encouraged me as I now limped with my arm resting around his shoulder. We prayed together. These wounds will need to be dressed, I said as I rubbed my hand towards the places of my body that now throbbed. To my surprise, they were dressed. The spirit himself addresses our wounds, the young man said. The hunter calls you a fraud, a fake, and a hypocrite. He's a liar and the father of all lies. Do not allow his words to dwell for too long. They'll cause your wounds to fester. It is God who justifies, who should condemn us. I came to prayer for peace, I said. In apathy, I was spat on and called a fraud. You do not run from your battles in prayer, although you will learn to hide in the shelter of his wings. It's in prayer that your battles are fought and won. Of course you don't wrestle with flesh and blood, the young man replied. I am tired of wrestling today, I said. He brought me to a canopy of trees that formed me a sacred shelter. Your sermon moved me today, he said as I began to drift and sleep in pain, yet in peace. Chapter 9 Friends in High Places Oh, let the place of secret prayer become to me the most beloved spot on earth. Andrew Murray I awoke again and prayerless, there in my grand bedroom and on my even grander mattress. I was tired and my head throbbed. 
Dozens of neatly wrapped wounds where the hound's blades had torn through my pale flesh were taped to my skin. I noticed them to be oozing with a black liquid, and my stomach turned at the thought that I must have clots to address. Nausea settled over me. After wiping a few tears of pure frustration, I worked up the nerve to unwrap a wound directly above my kneecap to examine the damage. I was sure now that the infection must be setting in. The wrap was soaked black. I threw it towards a small trash can tucked in my corner. I was stunned to see that the dress wound was perfectly healed, with a jagged scar left from the dog's bite. And the black was not dried blood, it was ink. Directly above the scar was now written, My Beloved. I peeled the next bandage to find a neatly healed scar with the reference Ephesians 1-5 written deep within my pores. I grabbed a Bible from my nightstand and flipped violently to the epistle. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, the verse read. Each wound left by the hunter and his beast was now marked with a phrase or a reference that the spirit had sunk into my skin. There is no condemnation was written with great emphasis near my shoulder blade. The holes the hunter sunk into my skin were now reminders of the redemption of the lamb, the care of the spirit, and my adoption into the father's house. Strangely enough, I now felt bolder than ever before. My body was scarred, but my soul soared. I must head to the church and face my fears, I said to myself. Preachers know that Mondays are often when real warfare takes place. I allowed my fingers to grace the scars and heavenly reminders on my skin as anxiety tried to grip me along the path to the first church. Mrs. Agitated, my secretary, slammed her telephone as I walked through the office door. You've got a mess to clean up, Luke, she muttered as I passed. Her name was Annabelle, but I hadn't referred to her as such in decades. I named her Mrs. Agitated, well, because she carried a rather distinct air about her, one of slight, constant frustration. Annabelle was far too beautiful of a name for the posture of angst that she existed in. Now, I never called her Mrs. Agitated behind her back. I was far too noble for that. Only to her face, and once I referred to her as Mrs. Agitated before the congregation, just to spite her and to get a rise from the mostly glazed-over children. It was my finest hour to some and my worst to many. Anyhow, she handed me a stack of sticky notes from congregants who would like to have a word with me, and there were already a few seated outside my door. I sat through four meetings without raising my voice. It was miraculous altogether. I was cursed, damned, and once again spat on. I decided enough was enough and began to make for the door when I noticed one more individual waiting politely for my time. I gasped a great sigh of relief when I noticed it was the very young man who delivered me from the hounds just hours before. What are you doing here? I asked with a smile as I remembered the last thing he said to me. He'd appreciated my sermon. Is this your church? I asked. Do you live here in apathy? I led him through my office door. My grandparents, the Johnsons, attend, he replied. I nodded as if I knew them, but I did not. My grandmother had been begging me to come to church with her, so I caved. Lucky for me, it was the most excitement I've ever witnessed in apathy, he exclaimed. We laughed. He went on to tell me that throughout his youth he had visited the land of prayer. A family acquaintance had told him the place did exist, and with childlike faith, he had set his mind on journeying through this mystical land. He had great adventures and learned much of the lamb all through his preteen years, but as he aged, his parents began to grow in concern as he continued to live obsessed with his foreign place. They diagnosed him with some mental illness and concluded that he was certainly delusional. His parents moved to apathy to be near his grandparents and quietly raised the young man, steadily reminding him that all that exists is all that you can see. After years of indoctrination, he came to believe that he had been delusional and that prayer must truly be for the uneducated. I watched as you were spat on, he said with a smirk. I followed you to the coast, wondering if you would step over into that secret place. 
When you vanished from my sight, all of my memories of prayer came rushing towards me, and after a moment I decided I too would step into prayer. When I came over the valley and I heard the bells, I knew exactly what was taking place, he said as he glanced across the room. I'd like to go with you again. I can show you some things and could even help here around the church, he offered. I had forgotten what it felt like to live. Thank you for speaking so boldly. I was now beaten, cursed, and twice spat upon, but I had helped one young soul find prayer. I was completely satisfied. We could try to take others to prayer, the young man suggested. For Evan, I replied. To my shock, the young man didn't know Evan. So I told him my story and how the preacher had shared with me about the lamb, and I gave him the preacher's copy of Evan's biography. You'll have to read this, I proclaimed with enthusiasm. Praying men share their books, especially the ones that inspire one to pray. We walked the coast together and began to pray as the door to prayer was swung wide, an open country with a dear friend. Life had become tragic, but wonderfully sweet. Chapter 10. Preachers and Pulpits Give yourselves the prayer in the ministry of the word. If you do not pray, God will probably lay you aside from your ministry as he did me to teach you to pray. Robert Murray McShane The first church of fiery affections, the young man proclaimed as he slammed the biography on my desk. I hardly slept a wink. This book set my heart ablaze. I was thrilled that he was thrilled. We shall carry this church back up the mountain, restore her former glory, he said. We shall, I roared, having no concept at all concerning how that could ever be accomplished. I have no concept at all concerning how that could ever be accomplished, I blurted out. Neither do I, murmured my companion. I did have a thought, though. It struck me as I walked along. The preacher, he preached to you from prayer and called you to receive the lamb and to dwell with him there. Did he not? Yes, yes, he did, I replied. I don't know how to see this church move to the holy mountain, at least not yet, he clarified. But what if we carried Evan's pulpit from the first church of apathy to prayer and cried out for souls as the preacher cried for yours? That thought that came to the young man along the winding way changed our lives forever. And with that, we had determined we would carry the pulpit to prayer. Until this point in my ministry career, I had only practiced preaching from the intellect. I had learned to examine the grammar and consult the commentators of old, and that was appropriate enough. But I did not speak as a man who speaks who has been with God in the land of prayer. I spoke as a man who had been with men in a library exchanging opinions and stroking one another's egos as we use vocabulary that we didn't fully comprehend. To the first church of apathy sanctuary we went to retrieve the small and aged pulpit that had been seasoned by those who had gone before me. In the land of prayerless, Evan's pulpit was rather light. I could move it at will from one side of the platform to the other without expending too much energy. We could easily carry this pulpit to the coast and have her in prayer in no time at all, we too now concluded. Getting the pulpit to the land of prayer proved to be an agonizing event. I'd push and pull, sweat and yell, yet in all of my zeal I couldn't seem to lift the thing. The young man with much more stamina than myself grunted and growled. We dragged it like a plow. It ate through the soil, building with it a mound of clay to add resistance. We lay down in total exhaustion long before making it to the coast and wondered why we could not progress. In frustration, I decided we must find the preacher and seek his advice. How did he get his pulpit to prayer? We found the preacher quickly, and we embraced and laughed as I introduced him to my new prayer partner. I showed him my scars and told him how the young man held up my arms as the hounds tore them apart. After some time, we got down to business. Preacher, I asked, how do we get Evan's pulpit to prayer so that we too can preach to wandering souls? He taught me something I should never forget. 
The pulpit as it exists in the land of prayerless is made of wood, hay, or stubble. The testing fire of eternity would quickly consume a pulpit that had existed among the carnal. Preachers seem larger than life behind these combustible desks. But when tested on the last day, all will see that what they've built is vain, self-serving, and rather empty. He went on, When a pulpit leaves the land of prayerless and comes to the land of prayer, it must become precious stone, gold, or silver, and of course, then it becomes much harder to carry. Ask for grace to carry it, he urged me. The Spirit must be your sustenance in all things here. Then the preacher, thin and frail, followed us to the place where we had quit carrying the pulpit, lifted the thing as one who was filled with great heavenly strength, and positioned it there next to his own. Now then, let's have some fun, he said, stepping away from his pulpit and beckoning me to rise to my own. From prayer, I was just a few strides away from prayerless, and I saw in the distance a young woman wandering along the territory's edge. I began to preach, to cry, and to wail, calling her to come to the Savior's bosom. She continued refusing to even give me a nodding glance. I shouted until I had no breath left within me and finally turned to the preacher and pleaded for guidance. Pray, he said, turning to the young man. My companion began to plead with the Lord of hosts to open this young woman's eyes as I carried on with my gospel presentation. As we both wailed in harmony, crying for the soul, the preacher shouted, Look ahead! There came to our vision a great veil that separated us from the girl. The hunter's curtain, he declared, pointing towards us. He hangs it there to keep their eyes from seeing and those ears from hearing. Don't stop praying, he demanded. As the young man prayed, a great screeching yell fell from heaven as an angelic being, like some colossal eagle, dove from above. Toward the great curtain he charged ahead, sinking his talons in its fabric. He threw his weight downward, and as he fell from the air, his nails tore through the hunter's veil. Preach, the preacher cried. As I continued declaring the cross and all of its wonders, the girl turned to hear what I had to say. Oil flowed from my head as I soared through my sermon, her eyes now locked with my own. My friends praying as I preached, we watched this wondering girl lift her eyes to heaven and shout with a great shout, I surrender, lamb, I surrender. And with that, she stepped from the land of prayerless to prayer. Now we were living, the preacher, the young man, and myself. Chapter 11, Pride in Prayer Press forward, do not stop, do not linger in your journey, but strive for the mark set before you. Fight the good fight of faith, and God will give you spiritual mercies. George Whitfield. We spent all night walking the land of prayer and slept beneath the stars in his peace. As the sun rose on my apathetic home, I rose too from my master bed. My eyes grazed my ink-marked shin. Everyone bored of God overcomes the world, it reminded me. I'd always been a corduroy man, but decided today to try out some khaki shorts to show off my scars and my newly placed ink. I poured my coffee and rang the church office and found Miss Agitated attentive on the opposing line. I'll be spending some moments away. Put off all your meetings and stop all the striving. We must make more time to pray. She huffed and slammed the phone, which didn't particularly disturb me. She always ended our conversations that way. I finished my morning brew. As the young man approached the sidewalk outside of my home, and we headed to the coast to spend our life fully in prayer. We dwelt there the rest of the week preaching and praying, reading and laughing, and even saw one more come to the Lamb. Our hearts were on fire. We established a rhythm each morning we'd slide away to pray. I once wore reproach for believing in prayer, but now that I'd spent some more time there, I felt honored to be a member of this exclusive family that experienced the real living in life. So when Sunday rolled around and the young man strolled through my front gate, I announced I would no longer be ministering at the First Church of Apathy. 
She can find another apathetic pastor, I said. I would rather live wildly poor and spend my time in prayer. How can I go back to preaching and prayerless after tasting what it's like over there? My friend seemed disturbed but put up no fuss, and instead of marching off to church, we headed to be alone in prayer. The young man seemed to soar as he prayed with great unction, though I couldn't keep up this day. I didn't want him to notice my lack of zest, so I raised my voice just a tad louder than his. I repeated a prayer that I had prayed before under great conviction, though now there was none to be found. Some days you must fake it until you make it, I told myself, and to some measure I was right. Some days need to be pressed through in prayer. Your shorts are new, the young man chuckled as we walked through the afternoon. My legs were pale and hairless, but the scars and ink made me feel as though I had been tried and came out victorious. Of course, the young man knew that he had saved me the day the hunter stalked me, but I had to let that truth fade away to the recesses of my mind. We had dinner with the preacher and walked near his cabin and decided to spend the night. I made my way down the hall and saw Evan's stoic portrait, then laid my head in total delight. When the sun rose, I awoke, not in the preacher's cabin, nor in my master's suite in apathy like so many times before. I sat up in a bed I had never known. The room was painted with deep blue and was draped with vibrant white curtains falling from the rod. There were books and candles and other knickknacks laid out nicely on floating shelves there lining the room. It was a strange but comfortable enough place. I have made it, I said aloud. I had always wondered how the preacher came to have his cabin in prayer and how he learned to sleep in that place. I longed so deeply to make my life in prayer too, but was always to rise in apathy and to be reminded of my shortcomings in flesh. I sang a song of delight and felt so accomplished. I must look around at my new place, I thought as I slid out of bed. The maker must have designed this place just with me in mind. The bathroom was grand and eloquent, far beyond my means to attain. Some chocolates lay there on an antique desk with a card that said, Welcome home. I was perfectly pleased. That is, until I noticed that the back of the card as I sat eating the chocolates read, Please call the front desk if you have any requests. Signed, the arrogant bed and breakfast staff. I was not in prayer at all. I awoke in arrogant, and in some swanky establishment I was sure that I couldn't afford all of my joy now rushed to humiliation and conviction gripped my soul. I sat in despair for at least half an hour before I worked up the courage to head down the stairs. A great lobby with a small diner awaited. I was no fan of the arrogant, but I certainly was not going to leave without enjoying breakfast prepared by a proud man. They labored about the spices and put their souls into developing the perfect flavor. I could not deny myself this opportunity, so I ate my sorrow away. When the bill for my food came, it was nicely stapled to the charges for my stay. I pretended to walk towards the bathroom and bolted for the front door instead. I could not afford to pay for this meal, much less the night in that room. I was quickly attained, caught by a swift and fit officer nearby. I was still far too heavy to make a decent getaway, and so to the slammer I went for robbing a bed and breakfast and arrogant. What had become of my life in just a few short hours? Now an apathetic pastor locked away for theft? Nothing seemed simple anymore. I sat in a dimly lit cinder block cell alongside one ragged man and a guard who was stationed outside our door. The guard encouraged me to use my one phone call. He said with a little cash for bail, I could be out there in just a few short hours. I could not bring myself to tell a soul of what had become of me, so I sat in misery. I sat, and I sat. My beloved cell partner told me of his life story. He was a sailor and a drunken one at that. He'd stolen all the gold from a magisterial vessel and nearly got away until his two-timing lover turned him over to the authorities after a late-night fight. 
It was quite a tale, entertaining as one's life could be, and certainly untrue, though I listened for a while, nodding and smiling along. He'd shared his life story, so I felt the only thing to do was to spill my tea as well. So I started at the beginning and told him of my father's pastoring and my following in his steps. Wow, you are quite a spiritual man, I see, he interrupted. Ah, yes, it would seem so, wouldn't it? I replied. I liked the persona of being a spiritual man. It had a certain pleasure to it, of course. Like soda that burns the back of your throat, it satisfies in a way that's hard to describe. Then it struck me like three tons of bagged bricks. The sweet spirit pierced me with sharp pangs. The conviction, they call it in prayer. Here I was in an arrogant prison cell and stuck in my predicament because I was too proud to be seen by anyone who would possibly be willing to help. And I was allowing a lying sailor to stroke my ego as he awed over my spirituality. How the mighty had fallen. I interrupted my story altogether and thanked the storyteller for listening and told him I decided to use my one call. With that one call, I rang the young man in shame. A few hours later, he arrived with some money and lifted me up from my misery. I told him the truth of it all as we walked on our way, and he laughed for at least in half an hour. Tears rolled down his cheeks as I explained that I could not leave, even from this embarrassing predicament, without first enjoying a nice breakfast that came to me by demise. He rolled with pleasure. You had let pride in, he finally said after we walked for some time. The preacher says prayer is not a place for the proud, but a place for the dependent. We are not those elite ones who have earned life on a higher plane. We are the graced ones who recognize that all those who live detached from the lamb's vine are brown with decay, he said. Yes, my heart got away from me, I replied. And Evan and his legacy and my grandparents, we cannot quit on them to form our own high society, the young man said with conviction. The rest of the journey was made in silence as we both chewed on the cud of this hour. I had grown proud and made my bed with the arrogant as selfishness plagued my perspective. In apathy, I called Miss Agitated and repented of leaving her to clean up my mess. She had covered for me by telling the church I ran a high fever. She demanded that I return to the office and lead like a man rather than squirming in immaturity. Like a man, I thought. Those sound like words that are foreign to the apathetic vocabulary. It occurred to me that she had been listening. She had heard me and was watching to see what would become of my new ambition to serve the Lamb. What if others were beginning to wonder, and to wander along the coast? I have a mission, I shouted to an empty home. These people must learn of the Lamb and commune with Him in prayer, I continued. Bathe me in humility, sweet spirit. I began to pray day after day as I set my face like flint to drag the first church of apathy to the holy mountain, even if I died daily trying. Chapter 12. Blind Eyes Open Nothing tends more to cement the hearts of Christians than praying together. Never do they love one another so well as when they witness the outpouring of each other's hearts in prayer. Charles Finney Another Sunday behind the pulpit, I now stood staring at a quickly slimming crowd. I preached on the humility of the Lamb who was obedient even to death. I beckoned the congregation to leave the self-serving state we'd known and to follow him to the mountain to pray. I was truthful. Not nearly as abrasive as before, but as honest and transparent as I knew how to be. As I closed, I announced the one thing everyone in apathy despised to their core. We will be holding a Sunday night meeting, I declared. You never, ever, ever interrupt an apathetic man's time to unwind, even for the greatest cause. We shall be going to prayer together at 7 p.m. sharp. This was met with chuckles from nearly every corner of the room. I dismissed the meeting and wore their scoffing as humbly as I knew how. 
As 7 p.m. finally rolled around, I expected no attendees, but knew the young man would travel with me there. To my shock, eight inquirers strolled to the sanctuary doors, Miss Agitated leading the pack. I was excited, expectant, and anxious, to say the least. I announced that we would be walking toward the coast, and it would be a journey, but I assured them that the trip would bring a desirable reward. By now, the young man and I had learned that the journey to prayer was always longer or shorter based upon the posture of our hearts. If I had, say for example, lived a day thoroughly in selfishness, and then out of habit decided to go to prayer, the trip would be long and uphill. But if I had lived with thankfulness and joy in my heart, and sanctified unto the Lamb, the journey would be brisk and enjoyable. These eight were skeptical, but intrigued, and what had spun their pastor out of this lifelong apathetic state. I announced we would sing on our journey, and the young men led us in some hymns that over the years the church had enjoyed. I thought we could stir some kind of affection up with a song, and the journey may decrease in its demand. They sang off-key. It was rather ugly sound, but they sang from their guts nonetheless. I came to see that they were unsure of our claims, but were becoming quite aware of their ache for the abundant life that could not be had in apathy. We arrived at the coast in under an hour, and now I was unsure of how to lead on. I raised my voice with all the courage I could muster. I know you've been told that all that exists does exist in the land of prayerless. I tell you truly, there is more. If we shall push past our realm of comfort and cry out to the Maker, trusting fully in the Lamb's blood, we shall see another land arrive. With that, I asked the young man to lead us. It was as if he had been waiting his whole life for this moment, as if the Maker had shaped him in his mother's womb just for this hour. He wailed with a great cry. O Lord, you alone are majestic and worthy of all praise. We bring you the glory that is due to your name. The others, I was dumbfounded to see, began to weep as if they too now knew that this was their call. They shouted with mighty shouts, I need you and be exalted. I saw in the distance a cloud the size of a hand. I knew the atmosphere had now changed and the skies were bringing the rain of another land. Crashing with power, rising with rage, the soil piled head over head. The eight now shook with fear and great wonder as the wave of prayer charged on again. Keep praying, I cried, and do not fear, for he is with you in this quest. What a wonderful sound it was now to be hearing souls from apathy alive, crashing with brilliance. The wave washed upon us, and prayer settled with grace. All gasped and cheered as their eyes were opened to the preacher now standing on prayer's shore. He cried as he preached and stole every breath, and one by one the eight now stepped from prayerless to prayer. Most laughed, some cried tears of joy, and some sorrow, sorrow that we had for so long denied this place. After an hour of celebration and worship, I asked the preacher to lead us to the holy hill. The first church of apathy was once the first church of fiery affection, founded on a holy mountain. We have a rich heritage, a wonderful legacy of prayer that we have for too long denied. The preacher will take us to the mountain and tell us of the founders and their calling, I announced. With that, we began our journey through the majesty of prayer. We walked in silence, the holy kind, when our serenity was suddenly broken by a loud shriek. My feet are sinking, Miss Agitated shouted. Mud on my favorite shoes, she declared with disgust. She was sinking quicker than I've ever seen and steadily growing in frustration on her way down. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, and lovely, think on these things, I cried as she continued down. Don't quote scripture to me now, Pastor Dimwit. Lift me out, she moaned. Have I mentioned she's named me Dimwit? I can't imagine what would ever lead her to conjure up such a thing. Never mind that now. I reached for her hand as she sunk completely, and the mud now swallowed her up. 
head to the coast, the preacher said, thoroughly tickled by it all. We ran quickly and saw her lying now buried, totally in the sand of prayerless, buried as a child buries a friend, completely covered from head to toe. I ran across into prayerless and dug her out quickly, for once truly concerned for her well-being. She lay there in utter defeat. In prayer, Annabelle, you must learn to walk in the spirit or you shall sink from her grace. I lifted her to her feet and told her how we loved her and appreciated her bravery and asked her if she'd seen songs of praise again with me as we walked. We journeyed again into prayer, and with others now singing, we headed to the mountain of our heritage. As we arrived, the preacher told us the story of Evan and his band of brothers and how they triumphed in prayer and lived with a great passion for the kingdom of the Lamb. John the Baptist was a forerunner. Evan was a trailblazer, very much like him. His life made way for many to come to know communion with the Lamb in prayer. He relied on the Spirit and denied a life of comfort so that you could experience the sweet Spirit for yourself. He wept and pleaded before the throne of grace. He fought many battles with the hunter and his hounds. They fasted in prayer, whole nights through, crying for the souls of the generations to come. Evan was called a fanatic and mocked by many, but he lived with his first love ever before his eyes. You have a rich legacy you know nothing of, the preacher concluded. We must restore the church from its fallen state. This is our mission and our call, what we are made for, I added. Let's give our lives to the Lamb and set our hearts ablaze for him as we dwell in prayer, Annabelle added. Let us here and now declare to the heavens that we will no longer dwell in apathy, but know him in prayer, the young man cried. The hour was holy, and all there could sense it. The Spirit seemed to breathe on us as the wind swept over the mountains and down through the valleys. We grew tired and journeyed to the preacher's house to break bread, and we slept wherever we could find a place for our heads. Chapter 13, Work in the Flesh Prayerlessness is Sin Leonard Ravenhill When morning came and I awoke again in apathy, I made my way from my bed with a lingering hope. I felt energy pumping through my veins. Possibilities. There were now wonderful and exciting possibilities. On my way through the office door, Annabelle sat at her desk and smiled as I passed. She had not once before in our decades of working together ever offered me a smile. The beauty of her name was now befitting. I scheduled a few meetings for you today, she said. If you'd like, I'll be sure to block off some hours for you to be alone in prayer. What a dream. The meetings were mostly with the aide who had journeyed the evening before with us into prayer. There was an excitement, a thrill about them even. All were now determined to see the first church of apathy return to her first fiery affections. Matthew, one of the eight, who was a kind and assertive man, suggested that this Sunday we meet to discuss our options concerning how we could see our church set ablaze again. So Sunday, again at 7 p.m., we were determined to gather and to assemble some sort of a plan. The week flew by with a kind of business that is not so taxing, the kind that feels productive and stimulating. I preached on faith, what it is and what it isn't. I urged the congregation to embody a living faith that intended to honor our triune God. Inside, I ached for 7 p.m. to come faster, so I could gather with the eight and the young man and dream of better days to come. Annabelle and I cleaned a dusty old room, apparently once used for Sunday school during Evan's day, a concept completely foreign to us. One hour, and only once a week, had been all we ever known of Sunday gatherings. We prepared coffee and tea and placed some snacks in the center of the table and were rather giddy about it all. When the others arrived, I was filled with awkward anticipation, unsure of how to lead us in this discussion. Ideas? I simply asked. 
how can we ever move this brick building to that sacred hill? We sat in silence for a minute or so before the ideas began to finally flow. We shall disassemble it brick by brick and rebuild it there in prayer on the mountain, one suggested. No, no, that won't do, another declared. Can we somehow drag the church on a large cart, another asked. We could gather the best engineers and throw our heads together, develop the church moving mechanism. We might even patent the thing and prosper from our innovation. I slowed that idea down by mentioning that we would have to lift the church onto the cart and the foundation would surely crack. Ropes, Matthew suggested. Lots of ropes. We'll tie them around the building and pull with all of our might. I could gather some women and make tons and tons of ropes, Annabelle declared. With that, the meeting took on a life of its own. I was unsure that we could ever pull hard enough to drag the structure, but thought if it slid down the mountain long ago, maybe we could pull it back up again. We wouldn't have to drag the church in one day, I suggested. We could build a team and meet weekly, and certainly we'd grow stronger over the months. Yes, stronger, Matthew added. We'll build our strength and persevere, the young man said. The plan was now set in motion. This week, Annabelle and the other ladies were to gather and weave fresh ropes, as many as they could fashion, and next Sunday night we were to gather and pull. It wasn't a brilliant plan, but a rather pragmatic one, and any momentum to me seemed better than no momentum. The week came and passed, and I had been to prayer on several occasions, growing more and more desperate to move the church there. As we arrived at the property, I saw the women strolling towards the meeting room proudly with large, thick, newly woven ropes. Through hell and high water, we shall move this church tonight, I said with conviction and a grin. We each lassoed the building with a single long rope, making ten loops around the structure and all. Pull, I yelled suddenly without any warning, and everyone yanked in their own sort of direction. This was chaos at its finest. We laughed and tried to find some order. On the count of three, we shall all pull, the young man suggested. One, two, wait, wait, give me a moment to tie my shoe, I shouted. We tried again and again with no success to see. For hours, we pulled and we tugged. Slowly, frustration settled upon us. This was a ridiculous idea, one declared. You had nothing better, another rebutted. We've all ruined our clothes and torn holes in our hands as we pulled without moving an inch. Miss Annabelle shouted, now sounding a bit, well, agitated again. An inch, the young man hollered. We have moved an inch. We all gasped with amazement, and Matthew now poked out his chest a tad further than he had before. The foundation of the building has shifted through the soil, leaving a large impression where it once lay. An inch at most, I said. We stared for a while, until finally, one by one, we left for home to rinse our flesh from all the mud. I lay to sleep with some sense of accomplishment. My palms were ripped and blistered, though it didn't seem fitting to complain now. When I awoke, I dressed quickly to see the church's movement in the light of day. I hustled down to the place where we had bled and sweat, only to find that the church had slid backward. We had moved it an inch, but it had retreated to its former resting place. Despair ate away all of my hope. I called Miss Annabelle to show her our predicament and felt angry tears roll from my eyes. All of our efforts were for naught. Why would the maker allow this? Hasn't he seen the blood blisters that have made their homes in our hands, I asked. Miss Annabelle's eyes seemed to carry wisdom as she gasped and spoke straight from her heart. We haven't gone to prayer together now in weeks. Isn't it strange to rely on the strength of our flesh and the creativity of our carnal intellects as we try to return to the spirit? We've gathered to come up with some sort of plan and a plan we concocted from our futile pea brains. But shouldn't we rather go back to prayer and the mountain and seek guidance from the Spirit? Shouldn't we draw from His strength and not our own? Truth pierced me with such grace. Yes, you've spoken rightly, I replied. Call the others and tell them that this Sunday at 7 p.m. sharp, 
we'll be going to prayer again. There we will seek the face of our maker and plead for his wisdom and strength. Chapter 14. Wind and Sails. The wind blows where it wishes. John 3, 8. I preached from experience on the truths we discovered. I urged our still dwindling body to mortify the flesh. I reminded them of the apostles' teaching that the desires of the fleshy nature and those of the spirit are opposed to one another and beckoned them to starve the carnal man. As service concluded, I announced that we would meet that evening to head to prayer. A faithful eight arrived, the young man, and one new congregant who had quietly participated in services for years. We were all thrilled to lead another to the place that had captured our dreams. We sang again on the way to ease the journey and introduced our friend to the holy place. We continued to sing and praise as we walked through prayer and arrived at that mountain that birthed our fellowship. The preacher met us. We told him of our ropes and our tugging and showed him the calluses in our palms. He got a kick out of Matthew's retelling and laughed at our innovation and immaturity. He offered no solutions, but said that he prayed with us. And with that, we began to petition. I laid my face down in the soil and spread my hands out wide beneath me. Oh God, show us your glory. Give us your wisdom. Bring your kingdom, I prayed loudly. Some walked and some lay prostrate. For hours we filled the sky with incense. I finally fell asleep as I prayed in some unknown utterance, and my mind drifted to a heavenly vision. I dreamed of a magnificent sail, dazzling white and exceedingly large. It had embroidered in it large black letters that read, We swear our allegiance alone to the Lamb. We will not surrender to the idols of man. No other is worthy of our life and death. Our sails shall hold only his breath. As I dreamed, the sail was filled with a raging wild wind that thrust it forward as it carried along. On the ship's floor, there lay several men and women praying for God's mighty wind to come. I saw Evan there and the young man groaning as they cried for the spirit to move. The dream came and went in a few short moments and I awoke in apathy as the sun began to rise. I told Miss Annabelle the following morning that I thought the spirit had spoken to me. I recalled the ship and the raging wind and the sail with letters stitched in. Rather than pulling the church back to prayer, I suggested nervously, maybe we shall raise a noble sail, the one from my dream, and tie it to the steeple. Then we'll continue to journey to prayer and lay on the mountain and cry for the spirit to blow upon us. If we cannot pull the building by muscle, we shall groan in prayer until the spirit moves it by wind. We gathered all of our white flags of surrender that we hung to cower to the arrogant. We had refused to fight with them and so lay in defeat, unwilling to expend the energy to wrestle them off. We now become their doormat and were rather content to be so. But now we knew we could no longer allow any man to dominate our way of living. We must exist under the lordship of the lamb. So we dismantled every flag from the entrance of our homes and Annabelle labored to stitch them neatly together. With broad script letters she wove in the message from my dream. Matthew and I climbed to the steeple. We mounted the sail there hanging over the church roof. It was a sight to see and many saw it no doubt. The complaints came with wild ambition. Our flag was too large, too much of a statement, and of course, it was tacky. I was threatened by many who warned that we would no longer have any part of a church that had dared to put on such an ignorant display. And what about arrogant? She may come any day with anger to crush us. What will you do when that day approaches? The mockers demanded to know. I shall stand and fight and resist them until death. To the arrogant, I will not bow my knee, I replied. They gasped for breath and stormed away after they graciously informed me that I was utterly unfit to ever carry again the title reverend. 
We carried on anyhow and journeyed to prayer for two weeks night after night. We sang and prayed for hours upon hours, asking the Spirit to come and to have His way. We prayed for the wind of God, the breath of the Spirit, and that dry bones may stand and now live. We asked for the Spirit to fill our sails and to carry us to a higher place in prayer. Each day I'd journey to the first church and stare at the sail, for a while just to see if the wind had started to blow. I informed the church that we would not quit praying, but we would wrestle with God until He blessed us with His own breath. My confidence began to wean when the answers to our cries were delayed. After some time, we grew weary in our asking, and our strength seemed to be sapped. The preacher taught us to persevere through and to regain our energy from drinking from the living stream. He taught us to draw water as we prayed and sang through the Psalter. There we found intimacy with God and renewed our spirits as we enjoyed our union purchased by the blood of the Lamb. Finally, one morning when I strolled to the church carrying a hot cup of coffee and stared there at the sail with firm hope, I noticed a slow breeze that had just begun blowing, and it filled the sail full. It blew and it blew for hours on end. I watched as the church seemed to lean forward. I rang the young man, and we rushed over to prayer and labored asking for more. Three hours later, we hustled down to see if the Spirit had continued to supply wind. Ten feet, the young man shouted. Ten feet, I proclaimed boldly back. Now the young man was quite the fisherman, and the church had no doubt slid forward towards the coast. It had slid around six and a half feet at most, but who cares about accuracy in a moment of victory? Now the wind continued to blow down the valley and fill our sail for several nights. Many came to see the sliding church, now sailing on a sea of rocky soil. There was a colossal rut dug in the terrain, leaving a trail behind the church's progress. I saw neighbors come and look in confusion, wondering if God was really moving. Of course, the scoffers came to belittle us. The intellectual elites of apathy announced to the town that this wind was a natural occurrence, not only of our lifetime, but not the first. The wind blew off some distant mountain and had a perfectly scientific explanation. Any who claimed this wind was a result of some mystical prayer were uneducated, miserable scoundrels. As they hurled their insults and prayerless, the hunter began to stalk us in prayer. The hound's bells seemed to follow us day and night. The dogs caught Miss Annabelle by the ankle as she walked towards the holy hill and left her deeply offended and bruised. Now we knew that we had to be trained for war, so we learned of the sacred armor, and the young man taught us to use the sword. We stored in our hearts the word of the Maker, and as we allowed it to flow from our lips in prayer, the words fell tangibly from our mouths and formed a sharp two-edged blade. We waged war with the hounds and did them great damage, but they slowed our progress, no doubt. The sail there on the church became a type of thermostat, a way for us to measure our success. If it was full of wind, we knew that we were triumphant in prayer. If it began to wean, we'd call one another and encourage our hearts to persevere. We needed the sweet spirit now more than ever. Our calling was dependent on a strength now to move us and no longer the arm of the flesh. As the church continued to glide, the congregation grew with inquirers. All had heard that we'd hung the sail and claimed to actually be praying for wind. The phenomenon of a steady wind that now swept our region was an advertisement all in itself. Many began to journey with us to prayer. We'd bring them to the coast and preach and pray, and the veil would fall. So our team of intercessors was rapidly growing through our opposition had multiplied as well. As more learned to travail in secret and set their hearts to cry for the wind, it increased in power and in speed moving the church further and further towards the coast. After eight months, the church was steadily skimming the soil of prayerless, only sliding backward on a few occasions as we met resistance from the hunter. Around Pentecost, and now sat on the coast of prayerless, overlooking the ocean and its splendor. 
Many dismissed our mission to move her. They thought we were after a better view. We'd successfully engineered a way to create a more pleasant experience, now located nicely on the ocean shore. But those who drew near and carried the mantle, their hearts began to grow with holy faith. We knew we were in for a battle as we approached the dividing line of these two opposing lands. Chapter 15. Renewal. The way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill, though it be hard and tiresome and contrary to the natural bias of our flesh. Jonathan Edwards. When Pentecost Sunday arrived, the church now sat on the edge of a prayerless cliff overlooking the sea. The sails were still full of wind, so some began to wonder if the church would be driven down into the sea. We announced then that on this Sunday morning service, we would be going to the Lord in prayer. Prayer in the church and the church in prayer neither had been done in our generation. That Sunday carried a looming expectancy and anxiety along with it. I gathered all my friends in prayer, the preacher, the young man, the elderly woman who had set me on this journey, and I commissioned them to plead for a move of God as I led the church that morning. The preacher warned that the hunter would surely be present and ready to pick off all the babes he could manage. We must be prepared to fight with great fervency and to resist his schemes with wisdom and grace. As the morning came, I now stood in the building I had known for the entirety of my life. My father had preached here many a sermon, dry and brittle his words seemed to me now. I knew where we had been was surely not pleasing to the Lamb, so today was the day of salvation. When service began, there was a stir and a clamor. The crowd was slim but rambunctious. Many had held to their conviction that I was to allow the church to fall off the cliff, sacrificing everything we had known concerning religion. In truth, I was willing to sacrifice our tradition. It had been dead to me now for many months. As I stood to open the service, I had announced we'd be singing hymns to the glory of the Lamb. I asked the body not to only allow the words to pass from their mouths, but to flow from the depths of their hearts. As they sang, I spurred them on. He is surely worthy of all glory and honor and praise. I admonished them further. Bring him the worship he is due. It was lively and rich, like we'd never known. As we concluded the worship... I announced that we now would be going to prayer. The room filled with awkward silence, the kind true introverts despise. I raised my voice, and it broke as I began to spill my heart before the Lord. That church had not known prayer for many long years. Sweet Holy Ghost, we surrender now. Breathe on us, we beg you. I wailed. The church shook, now hanging over the ledge of the cliff, and mothers began to scream and shout, clinging to their children. We will drown, one elderly man cried as many began to make for the door. To my surprise, the majority held put and began to parrot my cries. We need you, I heard. There must be more, another shouted. With that, we tipped off from the cliff as a burst of wind now filled our sail. We fell for a moment, and my stomach turned the way you do when you drop from a great distance. Just as we seemed doomed to drown in the ocean, prayer swept under us and welcomed us into her bosom. I opened the windows so all could see her landscape and shouted, Home, sweet home. The young man now stepped in and urged us with passion to sell all we possessed to purchase this land. Joy filled the place as I have never known in my life. Laughing and crying, singing and shouts of praise echoed from the ceiling's vaulted heights. We sang to the lamb as the wind continued blowing. The preacher stepped in and smiled with confidence and congratulated me on all that had been accomplished. He is worthy, isn't he? He asked, no doubt, I replied. Now, I do not mean to rain on this parade, Luke, but I hear the faint ringing of bells. We shall have to wrestle to make it much further. The hunter will not allow us to continue without a fight. 
The bells continued ringing obnoxiously in my ears until finally the joy in the room seemed to break. What is that sound? One mother asked as she rocked her newborn son. The hunter is coming. I said, try not to show the slightest hint of fear. The hunter, she asked. Yes, we shall be resisted. But you are more than conquerors through him who loves you. Prepare to fight, men. Fight? Who said anything about fighting? One asked as his voice trembled with fear. We've never known war, only apathy, another declared. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, the young man said. Around the third of our present congregation had journeyed with us to prayer before. They knew of the armor, the dogs, and the hunter, and so they led the way in training the other's hands for battle. No fear, be strong, for he is with you, the preacher cried. With that, men burst from the sanctuary doors, their feet now treading on holy ground. Immediately, one was caught in an oversized trap, the kind used to capture large bears. His ankle was engulfed by iron. He let out a yelp as we quickly realized the hunter had laid many around. Lay aside every weight in the sin that so easily besets us, I shouted to the trap saint. He dug his sword down into the instrument and pried himself loose with great zeal. The blood that ran from his leg was flowing quickly, and he sought to tie off the wound with his torn garment. The spirit tends to our wounds. Simply keep fighting, the young man cried. There were hundreds of dogs of all shapes and sizes, now snarling with razors for teeth. The hunter strolled calmly behind his great army and slung his accusations as fiery darts. We swung our fierce swords and sliced the hound's necks, fighting for our lives and for the lamb. We screamed with all of our beings. We fully trust him as we carried our shields of unwavering faith. We slaughtered at least two dozen of the beasts, but we were beginning to wear down quickly. I'm not sure we'll make it, I shouted to the preacher, as an arrow from the hunter's bow now stuck from my shoulder. Our valiant soldiers were growing weary, and we had no time to make it to the stream to drink and be revived. Then I heard the preacher cry with a mighty wail, Oh Lord, would you open their eyes? With a sudden tremor, it seemed the atmosphere broke. And there our carnal eyes beheld legions of angelic beings surrounding our battle as they began to descend from the heavens above. Like mighty ancient birds and beasts, they fell and plucked the hounds from their standings like eagles carrying serpents from the deserts as prey. Now the young man was caught in another iron trap, yet still fighting and shouting to his band of weary men. The hunter strolled toward him, determined to have him as he began to insult all that he was. You know nothing of prayer and nothing of honor. You've abandoned this place once before, the hunter whispered with terror on his breath. You shall fail again and never triumph. You're unworthy to be called a son, he continued. I watched as my closest companion was now tangled in a fight for his very identity. You are faithful. You are courageous and bold, I reminded him. You are loved and a man of honor and a warrior like no other, I declared as a prophet of old. He stood strong in faith and raised his shield as the hunter let loose a plethora of flaming darts. He seemed pinned down, and I could not get to him, so I prayed to the Lord of hosts. You surround us with shouts of deliverance. Just then, the largest of angelic beings swept down and raised his oversized feathered wings. He covered the young man and shouted, The Lord rebuke you. He stared down the hunter's cold stare. There was silence and stillness as they faced off in fury, their eyes locked upon the others. The hunter broke his gaze first and looked around as his hounds now lay in pools of thick blood, their innards spread on the field. The hunter accepted his defeat and turned and locked eyes with me and groaned. You can have your hour of victory, but this you shall not keep. You're not men of prayer, dear boy. You're men of apathy. He turned and strolled back to the tree line, disguised again by his camouflage. 
My congregation was an utter mess. The carpet would have to be changed now. Blood stained every square inch. I have never felt so alive, a first-timer declared. We continued to sing, Holy is the Lamb, and we prayed for the generations to come. We repented of letting our church slide down to apathy and determined to never again lose what we had now fought to gain. After hours of intimate fellowship with the Spirit, we stepped out of the doors to find the sanctuary resting again on the holy hill it was founded upon. For our children and their children, the young man said under his breath. Unto the glory of the Lamb, I replied. We both stared at the great sail still flying from the steeple, with her words now singing to all gathered about. We swear our allegiance alone to the Lamb. We will not surrender to the idols of man. No other deserves our life and death. Our sails shall hold only his breath. With great joy I announce, the first church of apathy is no more. We are again the first church of fiery affections.